service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rockerola. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Mike Tyson are insane. His talent as a young boxer in the 1980s was unprecedented, and his arrival on the scene represented a major paradigm shift in the world of boxing. He also brought great instability to the game. He beat up contenders on city sidewalks and choked them out in cars. He did time for the rape of an 18-year-old. He bit off the ear of Evander Holyfield while two million people watched. And that's only the tip of the Mike Tyson batshit crazy iceberg. Despite the lingering issues of loss and abandonment that drove him to some pretty awful choices, Mike Tyson was part of some of the greatest and weirdest moments in sports history. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great sports moment. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called 007-373-5963-MK1. I played you that clip because I couldn't afford the rights from TBS to a broadcast of the PGA Tour Players Championship. And why would I play you that specific slice of be the ball cheese, could I afford it? Because that was one of the biggest moments in sports on March 26, 1995. And that was the day that Mike Tyson was released from prison on parole and found himself at the crossroads of redemption in a downward spiral. On this episode, sidewalk beatdowns, paradigm shifts, be the ball cheese, and Mike Tyson. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, Season 2, Sportsland. Before the crowd at the Mirage in Las Vegas even laid eyes on Mike Tyson, they heard him coming. His opponent, Donovan Ruddick, pacing anxiously in the ring, he heard him coming too. Public enemies welcome to the Terror Dome thundered from the House PA. The song was an announcement, a warning, and a premonition all wrapped in one. 
And then the visual matched what the packed crowd was hearing. Mike Tyson, in the flesh, snaking his way through the throng with menacing ease. He was flanked by a posse in black shirts, sunglasses, and black caps that read, Tyson Rules. Mike wasn't wearing a shirt. He had no fancy satin robe, no corporate logos. Just a white towel with a hole cut in the middle so that he could wear it like a shirt. It looked like something he found on the floor of the dressing room backstage. He wore his customary basic black trunks, no socks. His Everlast gloves had been strapped on so tight that he thought his knuckles were going to burst right through the red leather. Mike had thought about Donovan Ruddick defeating him. He had dreamed about it. The thought consumed him in the months and weeks and days leading up to this moment. But now, emboldened by the heavy drone of the bomb squad beat, the undeniable flow of Chuck D, and an entourage that surrounded him like a secret service cocoon, Mike Tyson refused to lose. To Donovan Ruddick, Mike's walk to the ring felt like an eternity. He could hardly endure it. Ruddick had wanted this rematch. He thought their first meeting in the ring was unfair, and he wanted another chance, another opportunity to prove himself against the best of the best. But Ruddick now felt that the rematch was going to prove a colossal mistake. The audience knew it too. Mike Tyson was still only halfway to the ring, and he'd already won. Not everyone was granted a rematch by Mike Tyson. Some, like Donovan Ruddick, got their wish and regretted it. Others, like Mitch Green, were made to feel like a pitiful beggar when their wish was never granted. His name was Mitch Green, but everyone called him Blood. He got that nickname running with the street gangs in New York City in the 1970s. When he hit guys in the face, he hit them hard. So hard that they would bleed like crazy. Noses gushed, lips split. You got hit that hard and bled that much and you knew it was Blood who dealt the punch. He made the jump from the streets to the mat in the late 70s, and the nickname jumped with him. He dealt punches as a professional boxer in the following decade. But now, as the 1980s were coming to a close, there was only one person he really wanted to hit. Mike Tyson, heavyweight champion of the world. Mike had beaten Blood in 10 rounds back in 86, unanimous decision. Despite the loss, Blood felt that he and Mike were mortal enemies. Blood wanted a rematch, another shot. But Mike always blew him off, the way a cocky heavyweight champion blows off anyone he's beaten. And then Blood got word that Mike Tyson just happened to be in his neighborhood, Harlem, over at Dapper Dan's, an all-night boutique with a client list that included hustlers, drug kingpins, and prize fighters. It was around 5 a.m. and Mike Tyson was shopping. An $850 white leather jacket, it's stitching red, don't believe the hype on the back. No need to worry about that. Blood didn't believe the hype for one second. August, 1988. Blood was waiting for Mike Tyson when he walked through the front door of Dapper Dan's and stepped out onto 125th Street. The neighborhood had yet to wake up. Blood asked Mike what the fuck he was doing in his hood and why the hell he wouldn't fight him again. Mike answered quickly. He wouldn't meet Blood in the ring, but he'd meet him here, now. Mike popped Blood twice in the head with his fist, and the first punch knocked Blood down. Blood got back up, the second punch knocked him down again. Mike didn't wait for him to get up a second time. Mike was running down 125th Street, headed towards his car. Mike got the car started, but before he could drive off, he heard the sound of twisted metal directly outside. It was Blood. He'd ripped the rearview mirror from the driver's side and was screaming at Mike. And when he got tired of screaming at Mike, he screamed loud enough for all of Harlem to hear. 
He screamed a lot of things, but they all boiled down to, Mike Tyson, you're a pussy. And that was it. No one disrespected the heavyweight champ. Mike opened the car door and stepped out. And before Blood had a chance to wind up, Mike had him on the ground again. Mike reached down and grabbed Blood by his hair, pulled his head up, and then sank a deadly right hook directly into his eye. Mike heard Blood's nose crack and he felt his own fist split in two. He was pretty sure he had fractured his hand on the spot. Blood hit the pavement face down. He didn't move. Mike wondered if maybe he'd killed him. Fuck, maybe Blood was dead. Mike didn't want to find out. He jumped back in his car within seconds. He was gone. Mitch Blood Green didn't die that morning. His face was in the paper the next day. One eye swollen shut, nose broken, lawsuit imminent. Mike Tyson felt a pang of relief when he read that Blood wasn't dead, but it didn't settle his nerves, which constantly felt like they were on fire. It didn't cure his anxiety, it didn't soothe his depression, and it didn't stop his life from continuing to go completely off the rails. His new marriage to actress Robin Givens was a shit show. His manager, Jim Jacobs, had died in March of that year, 1988. And now, Don King, the notorious boxing promoter who had worked with and perhaps swindled Muhammad Ali, George Foreman, and George Frazier, had detected an opportunity to capitalize on tragedy and desperation. Don King was doing what Don King did. He was relentlessly trying to insert himself into Mike Tyson's life. For the moment, however, Mike Tyson was unreachable. Jim Jacobs' death wrecked Mike. Jim wasn't just a manager, he was a father figure, someone Mike could trust. He was like another version of Customato, the man who had pulled Mike out of one of the many juvie centers he frequented as a troubled kid, took over as his legal guardian, and trained him to be the best boxer in the country. Mike Tyson never knew his biological father. His father left him, Customato left him too, when pneumonia took his life three years back in 1985. Cuss only got to see a handful of Mike's wins when he went pro at just 18 years old in the spring of 1985. Mike won his first professional bout with a first round TKO, and he kept winning. He captured the heavyweight title in 1986. By the summer of 1988, he had 35 consecutive wins under that heavyweight belt, mostly knockouts or TKOs. They called him Kid Dynamite. They called him Iron Mike. Sports writer Jack Newfield once wrote, that seeing Mike box at age 14 was like watching Willie Mays play outfield for the first time or Bob Dylan sing in a folk club for the first time. Newfield said it was like watching the new standard at creation. And that's a quote. But in 1988, with Cuss gone, Jim gone, his marriage to Robin a farce and Don King circling like a vulture, Mike Tyson began to lose his grip. A few weeks after nearly killing Mitch Blood Green on a Harlem sidewalk, Mike Tyson nearly killed himself when he crashed his silver BMW into a tree. The crash was intentional. He was hoping the impact would kill him. Then he attacked his wife, Robin, while they were on a trip to Russia. And after consuming equal parts lithium and vodka, he hung from the hotel balcony for 10 minutes and threatened to take his own life. In late September of 1988, Barbara Walters interviewed Robin and Mike on her television show, 2020 and his wife of seven months famously described her abusive life with him as, quote, pure hell, unquote, and labeled him a manic depressive while he was silently sitting on the couch next to her. Days later, Mike, feeling humiliated by his wife on national TV, 
disrespected by his former opponent and deserted by those who had died and left him, went full tilt batshit crazy inside his New Jersey mansion. He threw a sugar bowl at Robin's head, and then he put a chair through a window. Robin left screaming. Mike's marriage was over. His life was out of control. He was out of control. He was a ship without a rudder, a boy without a father. And just when he was about to completely obliterate himself and all those around him, he picked up the phone and called the guy who had been waiting weeks, months even, for this very moment of vulnerability and desperation. Don King. Don King parked his brand new Cadillac near the corner of Cedar Avenue and 100th Street, right outside the Manhattan Tap Room. Manhattan, as in the cocktail, not the borough, because this wasn't New York City. This was Cleveland, 1966. Everyone in town called him Donald the Kid, perhaps ironically, given the fact that not only was he 35 years old, but he was an imposing 6'2 and 250 pounds. Don owned a tavern in town with a stage for acts like B.B. King and Lloyd Price, but he was best known as Cleveland's most notorious banker in the numbers game. He grossed half a million a month on other people's desperation. The guy sitting at the bar inside the Manhattan Tap Room nursing a watery domestic at beer o'clock, aka noon, Sam Garrett, was one of those desperate people. Sam owed Don 600 bucks from an unlucky bet he had yet to pay up. Don had come to collect. Don walked inside the Manhattan tap room and made his way over to Sam's bar stool. Don had at least 100 pounds on Sam, easy. Don asked Sam where his money was. Sam said he didn't have it, but he'd get it for him soon. Don said that wasn't good enough, he wanted the money now. Don's voice got louder, and the angrier he got and the louder he yelled, the more he seemed to dwarf Sam where he sat. Don brushed his jacket back with his hand and placed his hand on the loaded 357 Magnum stuck in his belt. Sam was suddenly too frightened to finish his beer. They took the argument outside onto the sidewalk of Cedar Avenue. That's where Don King collected. Don held the 357 in his hand and started to beat on Sam. Either Don's fist or the butt of the Magnum smacked Sam right in the face. All Sam knew is that it hurt like hell and he fell to the pavement and Don kicked. He collected. He kicked Sam in the ribs, in the chest, and he collected some more. He kicked Sam in the face and in the head, collected some more, and when he did, every kick slammed Sam's head onto the pavement. And one of Sam's eyes closed up, and he started to bleed from his ears. People had spilled out onto the street from the local shops. A crowd was forming. Don didn't pay them any attention. He just kept burying his foot into Sam's face. Someone yelled for Don to stop. Sam cried out in agony. The cops showed up after Sam's face had been beaten to a bloody pulp. Sam couldn't move. Don put his 357 on the hood of his Cadillac and his hands in the air. The cops knew Don King, just like everyone in Cleveland knew Don King. But they knew Don mostly for his rap sheet, which from 1951 to 1966 included more than 30 arrests in the city of Cleveland alone. Don knew other people too, the kinds of people who could help him collect. The kinds of people who could help him come out on top. Sam Garrett died just five days after the beatdown, and Don King was put on trial and found guilty of second-degree murder, which came with a sentence of life in prison. But Don King, 
didn't serve life in prison because he knew people, like a judge who just happened to be a puppet of the Cleveland Mafia. A judge who, according to memos sent to FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, took bribes on the regular in exchange for favors. Three years and 11 months later, Don King collected his things and walked out of prison a free man. Years later, Don King was still looking for ways to collect and ways to come out on top, even if that meant switching up his allegiances from one fighter to another before the sweat even had time to dry. Which is exactly what happened in 1973 when he rode to the George Foreman-Joe Frazier championship fight in Frazier's limousine and then left with Foreman when Foreman knocked out Frazier in the second round. Don King was just following the money. Don King was a fucking mercenary. More than 20 years later, in 1988, Don King was following the money yet again. Mike Tyson's money. Assets that were now worth upwards of $35 million. After the escalating dramas of that summer, the street fight with Mitch Blood Green, the assaults on Robin, the meltdown in his mansion, Mike Tyson had finally given in to Don King's legendary charisma. Nevertheless, Don's endless overtures to be a major part of Mike's life had paid off. And now, it was time for Don King to collect. Don wasn't concerned about Mike's well-being, about his mental health. He either didn't notice or didn't care about how the heavyweight champion of the world was free-falling into a black hole of depression, anxiety, and rage. Don was concerned with the money, or more explicitly, how he could get his hands on the money. So first, Don drove Mike to the bank in his broker's office and had Mike remove Robin Givens from all of his accounts. Don then had Mike cancel the joint credit cards with his soon-to-be ex-wife. Don moved Mike into his mansion in Orwell, Ohio. He got rid of Mike's latest manager, a guy who had been trying to fill the void left by Jim Jacobs. Don cut Mike off from his friends. He had hookers entertain Mike when he got bored. And on October 21st, 1988, Don King got Mike Tyson to sign on the dotted line. The contract was exclusive. Don King would be the sole promoter for every fight that involved Mike Tyson over the next four years. The deal shocked the boxing world. It seemed counterintuitive for an undefeated heavyweight champion to put all of his eggs in one promotional basket for four years, rather than entertain bids from multiple promoters for each fight. Plus, the deal set up Don King to receive millions of dollars in fees for services that a fighter like Mike Tyson probably would have otherwise received for free. Perhaps Mike hoped that Don would be a much-needed anchor in his life, another father figure like Cuss or Jim. And perhaps he hoped it would make things right again. But things were far from all right. The deal with Don King didn't fix Mike Tyson. Don did little to address what was happening outside the ring and the bad shit just kept piling up. Mike flew into a rage in a Hollywood parking lot and punched an attendant in the gut. He was arrested for drag racing. He was sued by two women who said he grabbed their asses in a Manhattan disco. And sports writers took notice that Mike seemed to have stopped growing as a fighter. It was like a professional arrested development. If anything, his skills were deteriorating, and he was only 22. On February 11, 1990, Mike Tyson's streak finally came to an end after 37 straight wins. He lost the heavyweight title to a challenger named Buster Douglas in a 10th round knockout in Tokyo. It shocked the world. Buster Douglas didn't sit on that throne for too long though. Later that year, a new heavyweight fighter named Evander Holyfield knocked an overweight Buster out in the third round. 
Evander Holyfield was hungry. He'd spent the second half of the 80s working his way through the ranks of the lightweight division, then cruiserweight, and now heavyweight. Claiming the unified WBA, WBC, and IBF heavyweight titles with the defeat of Buster Douglas was just a warm-up exercise. Evander Holyfield knew that even better than securing the title would be defending his title against arguably the greatest boxer of his generation. Evander Holyfield wanted to fuck up Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson didn't agree to Evander's challenge, not right away anyhow. And it was understandable if Mike Tyson, despite being Mike Tyson, had cold feet about facing the guy who had knocked out the guy who had knocked him out. But Mike wasn't about to let that show. Mike wasn't supposed to be vulnerable. He was Iron Mike. Mike only lowered his guard when he was alone, with someone he trusted, like Jose Torres, the former boxer who served as one of Mike's confidants during the time between the death of his manager, Jim Jacobs, and when Don King swooped in to take over. People think I'm tough, but that's bullshit, Mike told Jose late one night. The deaths of Jim Jacobs and Customato, the absence of his biological father, they all continued to weigh heavy on his mind and never seemed to let up. I'm a fucking coward, Mike told Jose. I feel like taking my own life, but I don't have the guts. And the public would never get that side of Mike Tyson. And Evander Holyfield wouldn't either. So Mike Tyson strung Evander Holyfield along. Mike Tyson's resistance to fighting Evander Holyfield built up so much anticipation that when Mike finally did agree to fight Evander, the date was set in November 1991, Caesar's Palace sold out in record time. Mike hid whatever he was truly feeling at a press conference, and when asked about how long he expected the fight to last, he responded, I'm sure your hot dog won't get cold. Snarky comments like that helped build the Evander Holyfield-Mike Tyson fight into a near-mythic bout, and it wasn't just boxing fans. The public at large couldn't wait. Would Mike Tyson get his shit together, rebound, and come out on top again? Or was Evander Holyfield about to solidify his place as a humble underdog who climbed to the top of the beanstalk and slayed the giant once and for all? The real deal. The world would never know. For now. Because something truly awful was about to happen that would change everything. In July 1991, Mike Tyson was arrested and charged with the sexual assault of an 18-year-old in room 606 of the Canterbury Hotel in Indianapolis. The victim testified that Mike grabbed her, ripped her clothes off, held her down, and raped her on the bed. Mike's defense was that it was consensual and she had every opportunity to leave. Don King told Mike not to worry. He was hard at work behind the scenes to make the whole thing go away. The girl, the charges, the court case. But this wasn't Cleveland, and this wasn't 1966, and Don King didn't have the right connections to the right judge at this time. It was early 1992 when Mike was found guilty. Indiana, Mike Tyson, was 25 years old. And now the only thing undisputed in Mike Tyson's life was that he was headed to prison. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Mike Tyson heard all the horror stories about the food inside the Indiana Youth Center when he was sent there to do his time for rape. He heard the cooks on the inside convicted criminals themselves would often piss or even shit in the food that they served. Just the thought of it disgusted him. So Mike only ate food that came prepackaged, like tuna fish and crackers. He refused to eat anything that was made in the prison because despite having a name that would suggest otherwise, that's what the Indiana Youth Center was a medium to high security prison that housed some pretty fucked up dudes. 
Dudes that did pretty fucked up things, regardless of whether they were on the inside or the outside. On the inside, Mike barely ate, and he also did not box. Boxing was not allowed. Mike wasn't doing much thinking about boxing anyway. He was busy reading. One of the old timers he met on the inside gave him some advice, and they were watching inmates work out in the gym relentless day in and day out. And the old timer told Mike that if all he did in prison was work out, he'd wind up right back inside once he got out. It wasn't that exercise wasn't important, it was the kind of exercise. Mike needed to exercise his mind. And so instead of hitting the weights, Mike hit the library. He read books by F. Scott Fitzgerald and Maya Angelou, Machiavelli, Voltaire. He read biographies on Karl Marx, Genghis Khan, and Mao Zedong. He liked Mao so much that he got a tattoo of Mao's face on his right bicep. Another book Mike read in prison was the Koran, which was precipitated by his newfound embrace of Islam. This image of a new Mike Tyson was the indelible image seen on news outlets around the world when he left prison on parole three years later, on March 26, 1995. It was 6.15 in the morning, and the sun was rising. Mike walked out of the Indiana Youth Center, a white prayer cap on his head. He was greeted by an entourage that included not just Don King, but Muhammad Sadiq, his new spiritual advisor. From prison, they took a limo to the Islamic Society of North America, where none other than Muhammad Ali met them for a morning prayer. It was a carefully crafted image that was meant to present a reborn Mike Tyson. He was reformed and ready to get back to business. He's 100% different, said Muhammad Sadiq. Okay, hold up. There's no getting around this. Mike Tyson is a convicted rapist and has never apologized for the crime he was sentenced for. As recently as 2020, Mike said, and I quote, I'm not above violating a woman but I did not violate that woman. With this assault and conviction, it had become very clear that Mike Tyson was unrepentantly dangerous. And increasingly, he was dangerous not only inside the boxing ring, but out of it. But some things had changed when he walked through the doors of the Indiana Youth Center. He was no longer unbeatable or undisputed. He was out of shape, out of practice, but boxing was all he knew. Don King set up some weak opponents to ease Mike back into fighting life. Mike's first fight in more than four years was in August 1995 against Peter McNeely. McNeely said he'd wrap Mike in a cocoon, but Mike knocked him down twice in less than two minutes. Next up, three nobodies, and Mike beat them all. Which isn't saying much, because Don King strategically chose these journeymen and fringe contenders to build up Mike's confidence and get the money flowing again. But the wins did prove that, despite being out of the ring for four years, Mike Tyson could be a formidable foe once again. The spark was back in his eyes. Like riding a damn bike, Mike was even the overwhelming favorite to win when Evander Holyfield finally got his day in the ring with the most desired opponent of his career in November 1996. But Evander was stronger than Mike had anticipated. Stronger than anyone had anticipated. Mike hit Evander hard and Evander hit back. Evander matched each of Mike's attacks with his own counterattacks. Halfway through the exhausting fight in the sixth round, Evander accidentally headbutted Mike and opened a cut over Mike's left eye. Mike didn't recover. Evander was stronger. He could go longer, harder. In the 11th round, after a series of missed wild punches, Mike was on the ropes. The blank look on his face said it all. The blank look on his face said that if he let go of those ropes, Mike Tyson would be on the ground and the referee had seen enough. Evander Holyfield declared winner by TKO. 
For Mike Tyson, it was the most brutal loss of his career. Evander Holyfield had dragged it out over 11 rounds. He pounded Mike over and over again. Mike Tyson just looked like a chump. 11 rounds of chump. And no one made Mike Tyson look like a chump but Mike Tyson. June 28, 1997, MGM Grand, Las Vegas. This time, Mike Tyson didn't make Evander Holyfield wait that long to fight him again. And this rematch was on before all the bruises had time to heal. Mike had a lot to prove, and the quicker he could prove it, the better. The day before the fight, Mike got paid $30 million per the contract. Mike left Don King's office with a check in his hand. He hopped into his brand new Lamborghini. He accidentally rammed the rear of the car into a parking barrier. He stepped out of the car and saw to his horror that the fender was dented. Being a boxer means that you were likely a little superstitious, and Mike Tyson was very superstitious. The Lamborghini was now dented and obviously cursed. It was bad luck. He couldn't have any bad luck fucking up his vibe before the fight with Evander Holyfield. He tossed the keys to a nearby parking attendant and told him to get the fucking car as far away from him as possible. He didn't want to ever see it again. Mike told this minimum wage making attendant to keep the car, a $350,000 car. And then he walked over to the Versace store at Caesars Palace and dropped 800 grand on scarves and shoes. 800 grand on scarves and shoes. In a matter of hours, Mike Tyson managed to blow through 1.15 million of that $30 million payday. Don King caught wind of an out-of-control spending spree and intercepted Mike before he could do any more damage. But there was plenty of damage left for Mike Tyson to inflict. He was just getting started. And that night in the ring at the MGM Grand, in front of more than 18,000 people, Mike was losing to Evander Holyfield after the first two rounds. Evander had accidentally headbutted Mike, and now Mike was bleeding from a cut above his right eye. The headbutt pissed Mike off, not only because the ref ruled it unintentional, but because now his eye stung like a motherfucker. All Mike could think about was the humiliating loss at the hands of Evander Holyfield that first time around, how it made him look like a chump. He felt he was heading in that same direction again, full speed ahead, Palookaville, population one. So Mike changed his strategy. At the start of the third round, he came out of his corner and went into a rage. He went straight for Holyfield, throwing punches, bobbing, weaving. Mike locked his eyes on Evander's eyes and wouldn't look away. The swings came fast and furious. Mike could feel himself spinning further and further out of control. He knew he would run out of gas at some point, and he further knew that Evander simply had him beat in the long game. Evander Holyfield would take him to 11 rounds again if he had to, and Mike Tyson couldn't risk another humiliating loss from Evander Holyfield. He scooped Evander up in a big bear hug, spit out his mouth guard, and sank his teeth into Evander's right ear. As Evander began to dance around in pain, Mike spat the bloody cartilage onto the mat. But that didn't satisfy the demands of Mike Tyson's bubbling rage. So with Evander Holyfield's back toward to him, Mike ran forward with his gloves outstretched and gave his opponent a shove. He hoped that Evander would turn around and just have it out with him, really get after it. But Evander Holyfield refused to take the bait. The ref tried to stop the fight and disqualify Mike, but he was overruled by the on-site doctor, who allowed the fight to continue. As soon as action resumed, Mike doubled down, this time with his teeth around Evander's left ear. As Evander pressed his glove against the second bloody ear, Mike waved him on, taunting him, daring him, fucking begging him to come defend his heavyweight title. And the infamous fight deteriorated into chaos before Mike was officially disqualified. The match became known as the bite fight and was hands down 
one of the most unbelievable moments in sports history. And once the dust settled, Mike Tyson was still pissed. Pissed about losing twice in a row to Evander Holyfield. Pissed about losing control in the ring. Pissed off about how that loss of control led to the suspension of his boxing license. And he wondered why he hadn't blown his top at Don King years earlier. Don looked more and more like an opportunistic grifter to Mike now that he had the luxury of hindsight. The bad deals, Don's exaggerated cut. Mike figured that Don had weaseled him out of millions. Sure, Mike signed the contracts, but they were a weasel's contracts. Mike Tyson called Don King ruthless, deplorable, greedy. Not that Mike Tyson was anywhere near responsible with his own money. He was one of the highest earning boxers of all time, but he spent the money as fast as he made it. $2 million bathtub, $300,000 limousine ride, $60,000 rug, $7 million necklaces, Bengal tigers, those things aren't cheap, man. And without high profile fights to profit from, the money was drying up. Mike owed millions to the IRS, to creditors, and to his second wife, Monica. Mike sued Don at the end of the 90s to the tune of $100 million. The lawsuit dragged on for years. And in the early 2000s, Don offered Mike $14 million if he would just drop the lawsuit altogether. $14 million. Mike had more than $14 million in outstanding debts. If he settled, he wouldn't even see a penny. But fighting Don King was a losing game. He had too much money, too much clout, too much influence. It was like Evander Holyfield all over again. Mike couldn't win against Don King. He would simply settle for less. He was back to feeling like he'd play the chump forever. Which is why the only thing that could happen next actually happened next. And that's what you call habitual action. Every person, every character is nothing more than habitual action. Maybe your habitual action is you have bad posture, or maybe it's that you wake up at 5 a.m. every morning. For Mike Tyson, his habitual action was that he couldn't help fucking a guy up when a guy clearly needed to get fucked up. In 2003, Mike Tyson found himself enjoying a moment of solitude aboard a private jet en route to Florida. Only he wasn't completely alone, and it wasn't his jet. The jet belonged to Don King, who knew full well that any day now, the former heavyweight champ would agree to the $14 million settlement. Because what else was Mike gonna do? Mike was on Don's jet because Don had summoned Mike to the Sunshine State to bury the hatchet. No matter what Mike thought of the settlement offer and talk about a new business plan, but Mike Tyson had company on that jet. Lots and lots of cocaine. The setting was perfect. Mike was the only passenger. No one was around to see or say anything. No cops, no annoying hangers-on asking for a bump. Plus, getting high while high in the sky, well, that was a different sort of mile high club he wanted to be a part of. The more coke that Mike snorted, however, the angrier he got. He thought not just about Don King's insulting settlement offer, but about the shitty deals that Don had given him over the years. How Don lined his own pockets with unnecessary fees and inflated rates. Mike did another line and thought, shit man, this fucking jet, this motherfucking jet that I'm flying in right now. Don King probably bought this jet with the money that I made for him. This jet's as much mine as it is his. But it wasn't Mike Tyson's jet. Because Mike Tyson 
didn't have shit. Even though he had gotten his boxing license back and was boxing again, Mike's money still went through him like a sieve. Whether he was spending it on something frivolous or paying down another one of his mountainous debts, the jet began its descent into Fort Lauderdale. Don was waiting on the ground for Mike, probably in a car that he bought with the money Mike made for him too. But Don was also waiting with a solution, a solution to all of Mike's money problems. He wanted to reconcile with the boxer who had made him rich beyond his own wildest dreams. The Olive Branch was a $20 million deal. Don wanted to be Mike's promoter once again. Mike climbed into the back seat of Don's Rolls Royce holding a shoebox, a shoebox filled with more cocaine and weed. Don sat directly in front of Mike in the front passenger seat and asked his driver to take them to his office in Miami, where they would work out the details of this new deal. There was a problem. The problem was all the cocaine that Mike had done in the jet. It was messing his head up. He felt anxious, he felt anger, he felt jealousy. He tried to forget about all the ways in which he felt fleeced and used by Don let down by Don, just like he was let down by all the other guys who died on him or left him. The feelings warped into those well-hidden feelings of self-hatred, the parts of Mike Tyson that no one could ever see. Don kept talking, that non-stop Don King filibuster rap. The greatest this, the greatest that. He was glossing over the bad shit. He didn't even acknowledge the paltry lawsuit settlement he was trying to jam down Mike's throat. $14 million to make the $100 million lawsuit go away? That shit wasn't even fair. Mike had had enough. The coke buzz empowered him. He cocked his leg back in his seat and then thrust it point blank into the back of Don's head. Don's head flew forward and slammed against the front dashboard. Don's driver gasped and lost his grip on the wheel. They were doing 70 on I-95 and the Rolls Royce swerved. Mike reached forward with both arms and wrapped them around Don. He brought Don's head flush against the headrest and squeezed his fingers tightly into the flesh of Don's neck. Don began to gasp for air. He struggled. He kicked his feet against the glove box. Mike squeezed his fingers tighter and could feel Don's pulse throbbing through the veins of his skin. The driver reached over to try and peel one of Mike's hands from Don, and the Rolls Royce swerved yet again. It almost went into the median. Mike kept squeezing, kept cutting off the air to Don's throat, and Don could hardly breathe. Realizing that Mike wasn't going to stop, the driver finally pulled the car over to the side of the road and came to a stop himself. Mike jumped out of the back seat and ran to the front passenger door. He opened it so that he could get a clear shot of Don King's face. Don't worry, Mike thought. This will be over quick. I'm sure your hot dog won't get cold. Before Mike could get a punch in, the car had sped off down I-95, and Don King was safely ferried away. Mike Tyson stood on the side of the highway, clutching the shoebox filled with drugs. Don King had just been doing what Don King did. He saw an opportunity and was trying to weasel his way in. He was following the money, following the desperation. And Mike Tyson, despite once being the best, was desperation incarnate. He stood on the side of the road, somewhere between Fort Lauderdale and Miami, a shoebox of dope his one possession, and wondered if, for once and for all, if the game was really over. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcasts because Badlands is available everywhere. 
If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. It's a show of guys.